Well, hello, Tim Palmer. Welcome to the Popcorn Space. This is the area for free thought and ideas. Feel free to speak your mind, and we'll try our best not to be offensive. How are you doing today, Tim? Sounds good, man. I'm doing really, really well. Uh, it's a unique time, uh, but uh, I feel healthy today. I feel um, like uh, this is, you know, I, I mean, I'm holed up in my son's room, uh, and it's the only quiet place uh, in the house right now. And mm-hmm. so if you hear clattering and clamoring and yelling and screaming, uh, my wife has said that just come in here, do my thing and it'll all, <laughs> it'll all be okay, man. Yeah. Yeah. That's been kind of, that's been kind of the quarantine, um, theme. I think I've done quite a few podcasts through Skype now. Uh, and it's been fun cause I had, like I had Mac Powell on the other day and he was one of the ones who you're hearing like all this kind of stuff going on in the background. I'm just like, everyone's so holed up at home. So it's just like, you know, it's part of it. It's kind of like the, the ambiance of quarantine. It's the real, it's, it's real life for, for once we can't necessarily, um, just show life with inside the frame. Right. Mm -hmm. Because the cat walks across the, the, the frame of the camera or the kids are yelling and screaming. And so I feel like, um, you know, remember that one video like a few years ago of the guy and he's doing the news thing and then the kid comes in and he's like trying to yeah, push yeah. the kid away. And that was such an anomaly and we all laughed about it. And now it's just kind of like, oh, yeah, the kid's going to come in. We're going to have to talk to that person. And mm-hmm. um, for me, it feels good to not feel like I have to, um, you know, curate my life as uh to be as spick and span as, as maybe I once thought it needed to be, you know what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think, I, I think it's a, a cool opportunity that we get to kind of see the background of everyone's kind of daily lives going on in the people trying to keep up with the, with the media, even at home. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, yeah, I'm excited to be here, man. All right. Well, let me get into, um, some of the questions on the topic, which is about interpreting the Bible and how, uh, maybe you go about that. Obviously, the Bible is an incredibly complex book, and I think, or collection of books. But I yeah. think, I think a lot of people, and maybe this is an overgeneralization, but I, I think a lot of people, and I say that because I know that I used to not treat it as a super complex book. You kind of treat it as, yeah, it's basically pretty straightforward, and I'm more comfortable not having to worry about what something might mean and not having to kind of struggle with that. Um, I want to start off by asking you about your faith, where you are in that, mm. how it started, and, and how it's evolved from when you started to now. Yeah, man. So that's a that's a really complex question about a complex topic. And uh, I was watching some of the other episodes that you've done, which I really enjoyed, by the way. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, and, and you seem to be able to create space and time for that. So if we go a little long, it's probably because... The question is complex. Man, so where do I start? Um, my parents were missionaries um, whenever I was a kid. Um, and so the first eight years of my life, with the exception of, of a, a little bit of time, whenever we were in the States, was spent overseas. And so um, the kind of the early formative um, experiences that I had with church and that concept and that idea and faith and the Bible and things were pretty, uh, pretty different than a lot of my friends who, like me, would consider themselves like, you know, having grown up in the evangelical context here in the States, uh, you know, my parents were really like real super, uh, incarnational in the sense that like they spoke Arabic fluently. Mm-hmm. Um, we ate the food that, you know, and still to this day, like I love 
Middle Eastern food and Mediterranean food because it was like that. Those are the tastes of my childhood. Mm. Um, church looked different. Like it wasn't just a thing that you compartmentalized on Wednesdays or Sundays, but like, you know, it's kind of an everyday reality that if we want to be followers of Jesus, disciples of Jesus, then like it's it's kind of a it's kind of like an all in thing. And so I'm really grateful for that. I think that once we came back to the states. Um, I began to become Americanized, I guess, uh, is, and that sounds really pejorative and maybe it is, you know, cause I think that there's a lot that we can critique about American evangelicalism. Um, but, uh, you know, it, it for whatever reason, like it was a pretty conservative theological home that I grew up in. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, my parents had never like drank it, uh, alcohol or anything in our mm-hmm. midst. Like, I think I heard my dad cuss maybe two times growing up and I can still remember them. Right. I can Mm. still remember those times. And, and back then, like my theology growing up, I guess in middle school and in high school was like, don't drink or chew or go with girls that do right. There's like this Mm. old, um, this old like colloquialism about kind of just clean living, you know? Mm. Um, if it rhymes, it works. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. If you can come up with a rhyme for it, then, or, or like a catchy phrase, right? Like mm-hmm. for the Bible, basic instructions before leaving earth. That's like a really simplistic way of looking at what you, what you said, which is this complex collection of, um, of writings that were, you know, curated. Mm-hmm. Talk about like outside the frame, like the Bible is not some wildly like put together, um, collection of stories. Like there's a real theological vision for it. Um, and, and it, it, you know, the stuff that didn't fit within the, the curation, you know, which was sloughed off to the side. And even some of the stuff that made it in is like, mm, you know, some people were, some of the folks that were kind of putting this thing together were like, I don't know if that like really cuts the muster. Is that the, is that the phrase cuts muster cuts muster? I think so. That sounds familiar to me. Little, uh, a little, um, uh, you know, a little background check uh, that you can put on the bottom on a ticker. Yeah, he does not know what pass the muster means. So <laughs> anyway, um, yeah. So I grew up in in the church. I grew up as a as a Christian. Um, I think that my faith kind of became my own. I, I used to think of like one conversion experience, but now I think about my life in terms of like many conversions. Mm-hmm. Right. Like every morning since I'm a dad, like I I get coffee and. Um, not not only dads can drink coffee, by the way. That I hope that wasn't too <laughs> like uh, because um because I'm I didn't mean it like that. Because I'm a dad, I making get a lot of assumptions over there about coffee yes, and dads. Exactly. Absolutely. Well, listen, you know what assumptions do, right? Yeah, yeah. Uh, but because because I have to get more than myself ready in the morning, and probably this happens for other people too. My coffee gets cold, right? Mm-hmm. So I have to go back to the microwave, put it in the microwave thirty seconds, and for real, like by the time I get to school where I teach. Um, like I've probably reheated my coffee like five to six times, you know, in the span of like an hour and a half. And I think about theology that way. And really like my spiritual experience is that like once, once when you can, you can go back and reheat the coffee that you like poured a long, long time ago mm-hmm. to an extent. Right. And it's still okay. But at some point, like you just have to throw it out and start a new and start a new batch. And so as I've developed as a human being and as a spiritual being and as somebody that wants to walk in the way of Jesus and considers myself a Christian, like there are times whenever I've had to throw the whole pot out, mm-hmm. you know, and then there are other times whenever I just have to like reacclimate myself or re, um, re-enliven the experience of faith and in, in Jesus. And so um, that's a really long convoluted answer to a really complex question. So I'm happy to I'm happy to clarify any of those. 
mm-hmm. uh, any of those things for sure. So when you were when you were younger, did you have you said that your parents were kind of more conservative in their in their Christianity? Did you have a pretty conservative interpretation of the Bible yeah. when you were younger? For sure, man. You know, yeah, I think I think I did. Um, I can remember having a dialogue, uh, uh, you know, with so my parent, my wife's family didn't really. They were kind of more liberal in their in their theology and in the way that they lived. And so I can remember having a conversation with uh, my father-in-law. Um, man, we've been married for a long time. So like probably whenever I was 22, 23, I'm 37 now. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I was arguing, you know, he said, get, being gay is not a choice. Like, there's no way that it is. And I was, and I was arguing, no, it is like you, the Bible is clear. The Bible says that that settles it. You know, that I believe it, that mm-hmm. settles it kind of like that mentality. Um, and it wasn't from a lack of critical engagement with the text. I, I think that it was just, I hadn't, I didn't know anybody that was gay, or at least, at least that I knew as a friend, there were some kids in high school and, um, you know, that, that maybe we thought were gay, but they were still dating girls and like all this stuff. And so there, you know, there was, I just didn't have the experience what, what sociologists call contact theory. And so, um, yeah, I was pretty conservative, man. One, one man, one woman in terms of marriage, I, I voted for George Bush twice. Um, you know, uh, and that's, and that too, like the marriage of political ideology with religious conviction. Um, I think that that rooster is coming home to roost in the United States. And, and so, um, I, I, I wrote a song whenever I was playing punk rock about being, you know, Uh, about uh, abortion. And, um, yeah, I would say that I was pretty conservative in my outlook, but that being said, it was nuanced, right? Like Mm -hmm. I I was still pretty, pretty much accepting of, of people and interested in different interpretations and open to dialogue. And it was never like, I'm going to bash it over your head. Mm -hmm. Maybe I, uh, maybe in middle school, there was a kid named Andy and, and I, uh, and I gave him a Bible at school and I told him he was going to hell and, I was like weeping whenever I was saying it, you know, cause it was really like hard on me. And then he found like this, this 1970s porn magazine, like in his, in the, in the bed of his uncle's truck. And like, I, it made the rounds to my house, you know, before it went around to, to other people. And so I always think about like, I traded like a Bible for porn and that's like such a unique, weird middle schooly, you know, cognitive dissonance type thing. Um, you know, I, I would say that, that my transition into like a more progressive form of Christianity um, has really been like the last kind of 15 years uh, in the making. Um, up until about 15, 16 years ago, um, I practiced what I would consider like a generous orthodoxy, what where I was open to different interpretations and different ideas. But in and of myself, like, yeah, I still advocated for pretty like pretty what we would consider orthodox like interpretation of scripture. I believe in God, the father almighty creator of heaven and earth and Jesus Christ is only son, our Lord. Right. You know, the, mm. the, the apostles creed, um, where I kind of like centered my life on, on those theolo- If I had to hang my hat somewhere, it'd be, you know, Jesus is the only way to heaven. If you die outside of him, you know, then, then you go to hell. Like it was pretty much what you think of whenever you think about like fundamentalist, uh, mm. American evangelicalism, man. Yeah, I was there. Mm-hmm. What is something that you think um, you believe now that would have shocked or at least surprised earlier versions of you? Dude. What are what are some of the more dramatic beliefs you have now? Some of the more dramatic beliefs, oh man, do we, Jackson, man. Um, <laughs> I think that, I think that, 
former me was is probably in some alternate universe like praying for my soul right now right? <laughs> not because i don't still consider myself a follower of jesus um i think that i'm agnostic in a lot more um in a lot more ways uh i don't i'm okay with like the unknowing mm-hmm. which if you look at like christian history like there's this this whole like huge like stream within like the broader context of christianity where they welcome mystery and they welcome like the great unknowing right like god mm-hmm. is a god is a question mark and we and we work toward that mm-hmm. uh, but we're okay with the questions i think a lot of the irony that came with my faith as a kid was we kind of would look past a lot of the contradictions we would make like that where we kind of our teachers would say you know god is so great that he is beyond explanation and here's what he's like and then they would go into a story explaining exactly <laughs> yeah. what he's like and you're like yeah that makes sense there's no contradictions there no red flags and um, right man yeah and i don't know i don't know how i missed it except that like we're ever evolving right you know and and um so i think that the agnosticism would have troubled younger tim um i think for sure like my perspective on human sexuality would trouble younger tim i think that um what wouldn't trouble younger tim is that i'm still passionate about justice and and poor people like getting a fair shake i'm still uh want to side with the marginalized and the and the oppressed like that's been kind of the the common thread and i think it's because my parents were missionaries in palestine right you know i mean they 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 lived amongst the people who are not even considered people right like they're not even considered you know uh, i even people will even say sometimes with my current work like you know, well, Palestinian, there's no such place as Palestine, right? So t- try to tell a human being that they're invisible, that they don't exist, right? Mm. And they'll um, and they'll show you that they do in a lot of different ways, you know? And so so I think that that's like the, the common thread. But yeah, I think that 7th, 8th, 9th, 10th, 11th, 12th, freshman, sophomore, junior, senior, senior, senior in college, like Tim, would be like, Ooh, dude, I think you're kind of teetering on the edge of uh, of being a heretic. I, I'm I tend toward universalism, which I think would have been shocking to me. Um, and uh, and for people who don't know, universalism is the idea that uh, everyone goes to heaven, correct? Yeah, kind of. So like, there's like a bunch of different theological ideas that are like universalist ideas. Christian universalism, basically, at least the brand that I feel like I fit most comfortably in and like that's like a typical millennial postmodern like take on things right like you're it's real hard for me to like put my thumb on who i am or what i am or or what i believe you know um because i'm okay with being agnostic about certain things right but for me the idea of christian even uh of christian universalism is that um carl bart was once asked like when he was saved and he said 33 AD. And the reason why he says that is because like there's a there's a thread throughout scripture that that and especially in the book of Hebrews, that like Christ died for everyone's sin once and for all. And so like the idea is that 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 everybody through the through the work of Jesus and through the through the love of God is already like accepted and welcomed in. And what salvation means, like according to like the Celtic idea is that salvation is simply remembering who you are, right? So so Christianity takes on a lot more it, from for me at least, and there's this beautiful concept in the Eastern Orthodox Church called apocatastasis. And that's the reconciliation of all things, that at the end of time, 
at the end of this thing that everything that is disjointed and dysfunctional and out of place and out of whack and like difficult, not just in terms of the human experience, but also in terms of the experience creation in the universe, that all of that stuff will find its place again, like within the person of God. And so um, so you can you can choose, you can pick and choose which Christian universalism you like you kind of uh, kind of want to to, to side with. And there are some people that like, you know, I think that my, my, I think my, um, you know, kind of as I was developing this concept or this idea that, that the love of God really is the focus and not like the person, Mm -hmm. I guess, which maybe we need to unpack that a little bit more. Um, there were times whenever I still held a relatively orthodox view of the cross, the crucifixion, substitutionary atonement. These are all words that like, you know, I would have, I would have used, um, and differently, but now I'm at the point where I just feel like walking in the way of Jesus has a lot less to do with where we get and more about how we get there. Right. Mm -hmm. So it's less about a theological perspective, checking off the right answers and like getting, handing that to St. Peter at the pearly gates and like getting admission in, you know, and more about, um, what I would consider like Matthew 25, like, did you welcome the poor? Did you feed the hungry? Did you give water to the thirsty? Did you, um, you know, go and visit me when I was in prison? And Jesus identifies in that setting, not as the one who's going out and doing the saving, but the one that needs to be like saved and satiated and like made whole. And so, um, yeah, so universalism to me is kind of a way of saying I'm not going to worry about the things that I don't know about. What I'm going to worry about is like what kind of person am I in relation to my neighbors? Mm-hmm. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> I think to to start to get a little bit into the the book itself, what do you make of the Bible? Like in terms of, do you believe that there are mistakes in it? Do you believe that every word is inherently inspired by God himself? What Dude, so, What do so you think I of ask, this complex book? Can I ask questions back or is it just yeah, like, absolutely. like a format? So what no, do you think? Um, so I, <laughs> I, I have a very uh, kind of complex relationship with the Bible. I feel like the point that I'm in in my life, surprisingly, maybe not to myself, but more surprisingly to other people, I feel closer and more awestruck by the Bible than ever, being in the place mm. that I am. And the reason that I think that's surprising is because I teeter on the edge of wanting to call myself a Christian, but I don't feel that it would be completely um, intellectually genuine to refer to myself as that. Yeah. So I say that because I was raised as a Christian. And uh, when I was little, of course, I had much more like very specific fundamental beliefs. I kind of went to like I started as a little kid. I started at a Church of Christ, like a very hardcore, fundamental kind of fire and brimstone place. And that's how my grandparents were about it. Mm-hmm. And then um, I ended up kind of going to some more charismatic um, churches. And then like in middle school, in the beginning of high school, I went to a very strict Methodist church, which was much more Catholic, I feel like, than it was Methodist. Um, So I had a lot of different experience with it. And it was about two years ago when I had never really questioned 
some sort of fundamental things about Christianity. And I think a lot of it came from one is fear of hell. Um, yeah. because they, you know, people will tell you God forgives all sins, which is great, but they have this little catch, which is that, well, there is one unforgivable sin, which is blasphemy yeah. of the Holy Spirit. And they're not very specific about what that means. Blasphemy. Right. Okay. It means disrespect, but what does that look like? What does, I mean, they say he's not even human, so I don't know what he would find disrespectful. And so they had this one catch that you're like, I, I don't know. So you can't really say it. It's like if you went to an amusement park and you were like, you're not going to die. No one dies except for one person a year dies on these rides. And you're like, oh, crap. I don't know yeah, what, what I want to do. Yeah. Um, well, and is the thrill of the ride like worth the worth the risk? Yeah. That possibly you're like the one out of two million people that visit the park. Yeah, I mean, I think that that the whole idea of blasphemy against the Holy Spirit, like, you know, like, um, are there unforgivable sins? Well, I think that we, I think that we as human beings, it's something in us and I don't know, really know what it is. Some of my more like hardcore, like friends that are like pretty much cut or dry on one side or the other, mm -hmm. you know, um, call it hypocrisy. And maybe that's a big part of it, but I, I prefer to think about it as blind spots. Like, you know, we're, we're really good at calling out sins in other people, but we're not like great about, about articulating like the own parts of our life that are less than aligned with like this vision that Jesus gives us of the kingdom of God, you know? Um, so, so what do I think about the Bible? Um, uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, I think that, uh, what do I think? I find, I find it incredibly, like you said, the less simplistic it is for me, the more appealing it is to me. Mm -hmm. In the sense that I'm not super interested in a one-dimensional flat version of reality, you know? Mm -hmm. uh, and so if, if, I, if I take out the simplistic view that like it's one book, totally cohesive, everything points to the same thing, and replace that lens with, well, no, these are different people in different times with different agendas and different cultures, and they're speaking toward this thing that they feel or that they know or this experience that they've had. Um, to me, it just makes the parts that do line up like so much more clear and concise and mm -hmm. like something that I want to hold on to, right? And mm -hmm. so... So, so I, I think about the, this, the scripture, this collection of writings about human beings experience with God mm -hmm. and with each other, you know, I, I think that whenever I find like a common thread from the old Testament to the new Testament or from the wisdom literature through like the histories or the, uh, an epistle of Paul with like the gospel of John, these people that came at the world and, and their view of God and Jesus and you know, in faith and spirituality from such different places. And there are like points of contact that where they like are like, okay, like we can agree on this. To me, like that's where I want to hang my hat. Like that's where I want to like kind of live my life. And then everything around that is just interesting dialogue and conversation. But the truth that runs through the pages and runs through the experiences and runs through the times. Um, those are the pieces of scripture that I would say are, you know, I mean, Paul talks, uh, Paul, the apostle Paul, he talks a lot about, you know, it, it, there are times whenever he's like, this is my opinion. Mm -hmm. 
and yet it's canonized. Like, mm-hmm. so we are supposed to see this. And my understanding when I was growing up as like the infallible word of God. Well, how is it the infallible word of God when the dude who wrote it is saying, I don't really know, but I think that this is probably what you need to do. You mm-hmm. know, uh, so so the there are probably still places where people could challenge me that I'm too much of a fundamentalist whenever it comes to scripture or maybe that I'm heretical in my interpretation of it, you know, but I think for me, um, it's really beautiful that, that there's so many different textures to people's understanding of who God is. Um, and we read about it all like in scripture, you know, um, there's this concept of, of, and I'm, I don't know if necessarily know that I'm there, like I'm in this camp, but like there's this concept of um, what's called progressive revelation. And that's the idea that like as humanity grows, our concept and, and understanding of God grows with it. Right. And so in the very beginning of scripture and time, you have very rudimentary, like, like infantile perceptions of who God is. Right. Mm-hmm. So if, if, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, right? Like that's even like better than what it was before that, which is like, if you come and like steal my pig, I'm going to slaughter your family. Right. Mm-hmm. You know, which is kind of like the justice uh, of the, you know, is unmitigated retribution. And then like, you know, we grow as human beings and we're like, wait a second, if we do that, then like, as Gandhi said, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth and the whole world goes blind. Right. You know, mm-hmm. so so um, I don't know if he added the tooth for the tooth or not, because that wouldn't make sense. But an eye for an eye and the whole world goes blind. So like, um, uh, you know, and so we progress, right? And and as we progress as human beings, like we understand God in a more mature way, just in the same way that my kids understand me in a more mature and nuanced way as they grow up. And the way that I interact with them changes and shifts. Like I would never say shit in front of my five-year-old. But whenever my 12-year-old and I are in the car and we're talking about politics or something that she's passionate about or I'm passionate about, and and I say, you know, a, a harsh word, that's what we call them in the Palmer House, harsh words, <laughs> uh, because we don't believe in bad words. Words are words, right? They're yeah. harsh words. Um, she has the maturity and understanding to know that, like, I'm not just being flagrantly obscene. Mm-hmm. I'm really you know, that's the word that I need to express yeah. how I you're feel. You're not being vulgar for the sake of being vulgar. You're, right, trying, exactly. you're trying to use the appropriate word mm-hmm. that carries the appropriate amount of power. Yeah, yeah, exactly. You're exactly right. And so whenever we talk about words and power, I think that the Bible is like full of super powerful, meaningful, helpful words. I think that the the church in the West at least has gotten it wrong in the sense that like we make the Bible, the, the word of God, we even say that it's the word of God. Well, like even according to scripture, if you read it, like that's not really true, right? Mm-hmm. Like Jesus, like especially in the gospel of John, which evangelicals love because in the gospel of John, you know, we have John three sixteen, you know, which is for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever should believe in him will not perish, but will have everlasting life. Like the book of John is where Jesus says like, in my house, there are many mansions. If, if it weren't true, I wouldn't have told you this, right? I'm the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the father except through me. And so the evangelical community loves that language. And yet even 
even according to the Gospel of John, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God, and the Word was with God. And then, and then John extrapolates that, and he doesn't say it's like a it's like a book that you put on your shelf. He says it's a human being. It's it's God incarnate. That the Word of God, the reason of God, the logic of God, the logos of God, the reality, the essence of God is encapsulated in this person, Jesus Christ. Right. Mm-hmm. And so I would much rather be uh, accused of having a low and I don't even think I have it, but like I would rather be accused by my evangelical brothers and sisters for having a low view of scripture than having a low view of Jesus. Mm -hmm. I think a lot of where I, where I come into the uh, vagueness of not being able to call myself a Christian came from one, one of the ways I started kind of walking away. The the first question that I had was uh, I had talked to a friend about, the story of Adam and Eve, and they were saying, well, I think that story is metaphorical. And I just never heard that before, so I was like, yeah. oh, that's interesting. I'll, I I mean, like, I don't, I don't think that's true, but it's an interesting idea, so I kind of started looking into it, and uh, I read the story of Adam and Eve again, and then I read about it, and I started to realize, because I'm very into poetry, I like writing and reading poetry, yeah. and I like, uh, I love fairy tales. Like, I like the wording of fairy tales and how they can explain a sort of fundamental truth that is kind of beyond our basic way of speaking. I couldn't speak to you the same truth that a fairy tale could tell you. And I like that. And I think art has uh, a lot to do with that in general. But when I was reading the story of Adam and Eve, I started to realize there's a lot of similarities between a fairy tale and the story. It's written in a similar way where it's got a lot of metaphorical language and it kind of seems um like maybe this isn't word for word exactly how time began but it's more the most accurate way to describe the beginning of the world that we could understand or that we would need to understand well and in the yeah and in the jewish imagination like the the writer of genesis one and two and three the creation narrative really until the tower of Babel and, you know, and the, and the flood and all that stuff, like the, 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 the writer of that had something theological that they wanted to say, or the community of writers, however you think about it. And, and so in the Jewish concept of a God who doesn't fight with chaos, but, you know, is is able to speak into that chaos and the chaos listens to it and doesn't like push back against it. Um, You know, that's a theological statement. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, right? Elohim, like there's this, there's this bigness to God, right? So even in the Hebrew language, it's not even the, the word for God in the beginning, God, right? Like even that word for God is, is, is metaphorical in the sense that it's a plural uh, a plural pronoun. It's, it's, it says Elohim, mm. which is like many waters. It's a difference between a drop of water, which is water, mm. and then a waterfall of water, which is water too, right? And mm. this is Elohim, this this waterfall, uh, you know, reality of God. Um, and so the so for me, it was really about I think taking myself outside and I had a professor in college and he said like, before I can ever see Adam and Eve as individuals, I have to see them as stand-ins for all of humanity because then I can see myself in them. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, and yeah. And I think that for me, like the, the, the fundamentalist, like literal 
it, it just even though I ascribed to like a literal reading of scripture, it never really held water for me. And I knew it internally. I knew that it was like disingenuous at worst and just uninformed at, at best or had an agenda behind it. Right. And, um, you know, it, yeah, we don't read, I don't read poetry in the same way that I read a novel. Mm-hmm. You know, I don't listen to music in the same way that I listen to a lecture. Mm-hmm. And the collection of scripture shouldn't be read in the exact same way. Tolkien, J.R.R. Tolkien, I don't know if you're like a Lord of the Rings fan, but like he said, um, he said that that, that everything is, that all all myths are true, just some of them happen to be facts, right? Mm -hmm. You know, and so, so he was a Christian and he was like, yeah, it's a myth. Mm-hmm. Of course it's a myth because myths form us as communities and as cultures, but it doesn't mean that it's not true and it doesn't mean that it's not factual. And so um, we have a lot of these conversations at the Palmer House because, you know, all of these kids' Bibles like are very literal in their, you know, retelling of the story. Um, and so me and my kids, like we talk about that. Well, do you think Adam and Eve were like real? Well, yeah. Like, why do you think that? Well, it says it, right? Well, I know, but what else does the Bible say? Well, you know... I can remember my daughter like talking about the conquest narrative where God like drowns all of the Egyptians. And I was like, you know, I kind of like have an issue with that. I don't know about you. And she goes, well, God's got to do what God's got to do. She was like six years old. And I was like, <laughs> oh my gosh, like, what does that mean? What are the implications of that theology? And so we, we talk about it. Um, and maybe we needed it to be, maybe you and I needed it to be more black and white and like more, um, but, but I think that the damage, you know, that you've experienced and that I experienced, and I'm not trying to make an assumption when it comes to scripture, is that I know a lot of people that weren't raised in that environment that have a lot more of a, they have a lot more of a, a lot healthier relationship with scripture than I ever did growing up. Mm-hmm. And I kind of equate it with like alcohol. Like I had friends who grew up in houses where their parents would have wine or beer at night, and that was like super just like a part of their life. Right. And in my, and in my house, it was like, no, we don't do that. We don't drink. We're not a stumbling block, like all, all of this stuff. And so, so that that became the fruit on the tree, right. Mm-hmm. That I had to stay away from. And if I didn't stay away from it, then, and I would judge other people for not staying away from it. But, but my friends who grew up in a house where alcohol was just kind of like a part of it, man, they were so much more well-adjusted in college and, and as young adults than me and some of my other friends who, you know, it was the forbidden fruit. And so mm-hmm. all of a sudden you get in a place where you can access it. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and so scripture, I feel like is the same way it can be. Frederick Bigner said it like this. He said, religion and sex are the same in this. They can be used to heal the human heart or to blow up a bridge or they're the same as night. Um, um, hold on. Uh, they're the, they're the same as Nitrogen. I think he says nitrogen. I'll have to go back and look. I feel really dumb that I just started quoting something I couldn't. <laughs> he yeah, says, uh, you know that they that they that, that they're the same. That they can heal the human heart, right? If you're going to have a heart attack and you take a nitrous pill, it will help your heart, or it can blow up a bridge, right? Mm-hmm. You know, it can, it, in a different amount, it can blow up a bridge. And so they're both dangerous. Religion can be dangerous, um, or it can be healing. Mm-hmm. You know. Um, 
Yeah, dude, I don't know, man. Some of the stories in the Bible, like, really freak me out, dude. I mean, like, sometimes I've just, like, slammed it down and said, this i'm not gonna like Mm -hmm. that's offensive you can cut that out i'm not (laughs) i'm not gonna i'm not going to um you know i'm done with this and then i'm always pulled back in and intrigued by um some of the other more nuanced you know or maybe not even so much nuance just like the, the the places where i feel like that is more in line with the jesus with the god that i feel like jesus followed than than the one that we sometimes follow right now. It's th- complicated, man. I think the uh, I've I've come quite uh, to a full, almost not quite a full circle. But um, when I first like walked away from Christianity and and started not labeling myself as a Christian, I kind of jumped into, and I think it was because I was so comfortable in the Christian camp and being in a community of people who thought like I did. And I started watching all these videos by atheists and there's like a whole community online of atheists and people like talking to each other in like different forums. And I started reading, you know, I read the God delusion. I started reading uh, Christopher Hitchens and some brilliant. Yeah. God is not great. And, um, the thing about it is it's, it's a community and I wanted to be a part of it. So I started identifying and if people ask me, I go, yeah, I'm an atheist. That's what I, refer to myself as and then I'd even like defend atheism because I think a lot of the misconceptions are you know for a fact that nothing is out there and I'm like no that's I don't think that's what atheism means because atheist just means not a theist it just means that I don't ascribe to the idea of there being a god so it's like if someone said you know you don't believe in the tooth fairy they'd be like so you know for a fact that there is no <laughs> mystical things out there. It's like, no, that's not what I'm saying. I'm just saying that particular thing, if I was a betting man, I wouldn't bet on it. But it might. I don't know. Yeah. And eventually, I, because it's so freaking polarizing being on the, like, fundamentalist atheist, I guess. Um, you know, because God is not great. It's a good. It's a good book. A lot of good arguments are made in there. But the subtitle to that is How Religion Poisons everything it's everything. not it's not religion poisons some things it's not hey religion can be good every now and again but but for the most part it's bad it's absolutely everything and i think that was the part that was hard for me because christopher hitchens is i really think he's he was a brilliant guy and yeah. i really enjoyed listening to him but there was that one thing that i'm like man that seems like intellectual suicide to make this kind of all-encompassing statement like that um yeah, like because it's saying, yeah, it's it's a fundamentalist perspective. It's saying like there has never ever been a time in all of history where religion has been utilized mm-hmm. for the good of humanity. You know, and and it's just like a. I agree. I read the book, and I and like Richard Dawkins and um, Sam Harris and like all of those all of those kind of like new atheists. Um, I I appreciate uh, what they write, but but at a certain at a certain point, it's like I'm tired of people yelling at me mm-hmm. and I feel like they're always yelling at me or like belittling me if I'm mm-hmm. a person of faith or if I'm a person who comes out at the end of this with like a perspective that's different than theirs. And I feel that same way with my fundamentalist Christian friends who, um, you know, it, it's like it, it, it's it's polarizing. I've never really been like I've never really camped out in like the atheist world. I, I've I've admitted that that I think that maybe I, I'm a nihilist or an atheist or like, and I'm not suggesting that they're the same thing, but like, mm-hmm. you know, existentially I'm very, 
like perplexed by all things all the time, you know, and part mm-hmm. of that's my personality. Part of that's like mental health issues. Part of that is how I grew up. Like we're all, you know, a conglomerate of, um, experiences. So I've never really camped out there. I've never walked away from the church in the sense of like, I don't consider myself a Christian anymore. I've questioned it. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I've even articulated like, you know, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know where I am with Jesus or God or the Bible or prayer or, you know, but the thing that never leaves me is that like, when I look at the people who are suffering in this world, like I see Jesus among them, you know? And so at the end of the day, like that's where I want to align my life. Um, It's a lot, again, like it goes back to, I'm not as interested in whether something in the Bible is factual as much as I am in, in the truth that it's trying to tell me in the same way that I'm like, you know, I've heard plenty of myths from from other faiths and other people who have no faith and they're really beautiful and they mean something because there's meaning there. And and some people would say that I'm a relativist in that sense and and maybe they're right. I don't think that they are. I think that I still have a high regard for scripture and for the Bible. Um, but maybe not above and beyond anybody else's experience of God. Um, and so right there, some people say, okay, then you're not a Christian. You know, mm-hmm. one, I'm, and I'm like, no, that's not, that's not true. You know, like, yeah, are you going to tell all of these other people that you listen to and that I see their books on your shelf, like that they weren't followers of Jesus as well? Well, no, like we would never say C.S. Lewis is a heretic unless you're like the most fundamental of fundamentalist Christians, right? Mm-hmm. You know, um, which maybe we grew up in that, I don't know. But like C.S. Lewis is like regarded so highly. And yet in some of his writings, specifically The Great Divorce, he leans toward, if not actually saying he's a universalist he says if if hell has gates they're locked from the inside Mm -hmm. where is that in the bible Mm -hmm. you know like we don't see that in the bible it's not biblical and yet like we're okay with with um c.s lewis who wrote mere christianity like talking about that but whenever i do it's like somehow you know maybe i'm just not credentialed enough maybe i haven't you know maybe i'll go to oxford and then they'll believe me mm-hmm. that i'm <laughs> being disingenuous yeah i had so i had a talk with um with a friend of mine i guess we're kind of related but he's he's more so a friend but we were talking about when i when i finally kind of came out kind of publicly about it which i, I feel like so faith is really a, mainly a personal issue but i think uh in a lot of evangelical circles they can't really make it a personal issue because when people are afraid of their friends going to hell, they're like, well, yeah, screw personalism. We can't worry about that. So maybe it is a little forward to say, Hey, are you a Christian? If not, can I talk to you about it? But Hey, if hell is on the line, I got to do it. So growing up in that kind of world and leaving from it, it's, it's, it's weird to be outside of Christianity and to see how persistent Christians have been with me. And, uh, it's also, it's also been a little humbling because in, in the beginning I heard a lot of, well, you were probably never really a Christian if you're not anymore, or you were probably never really saved. And at first, like, I, I don't get very offended very easily, so I understood. It's like, you know, that's kind of what they're in the middle of, so I'm not going to take offense to it. But it did kind of hurt a little bit to hear that, because I'm like, man, if you only knew. Like, I was as saved as you could be. Like, I was so there. Like, I wasn't just kind of half-assing it. Yeah. But then I've come to the place where I, I'll hear people, um, like, telling their testimony saying like either I was an atheist who became a Christian or I was a Christian who became an atheist who then became a Christian again. And there's this part in me that maybe doesn't say it out loud, but feels like, 
well, you're probably never really an atheist <laughs> if you're a Christian now. Because I was like, if you actually left, I couldn't see you ever going back. And I had to be like, whoa, whoa, whoa. That was really counter to what I've what I've been saying that the Christians have been yeah. critical about. So um, We leave ourselves open to conversion and transformation, right? I think that that's mm-hmm. a mark of spiritual maturity is that is that we that we're open to the possibility that we're wrong, right? There's mm-hmm. the not only is it agnostic in the sense that like we're open to the, we don't know the answers, but we're also it's like a humility to carry with you the understanding or at least the the realization or the idea that like maybe I'm not right about everything. Mm-hmm. And so I'm always open to con- new conversions. You know, I can remember having conversations with these dudes that would come by the house that were Mormon and um, I was pretty evangelical at the time. And so my goal was really to convert them and their goal was to convert me, you know. Mm-hmm. And as the years have passed, what I've found is that conversations with those people have taken on a different tenor and a different idea whenever I come from a place of like, maybe they have something to teach me. Mm-hmm in this moment and what can I learn from them? Um, and obviously like I, I want to weigh, there's a, there's a part of me that wants to be intellectually pure. Like I really want things to make sense for me, but then there's another part of me, the more poetic part of me, the part of me that kind of wins out, which is just like, I'm looking for beauty. I'm looking for, um, something that's going to like compel me to live differently and transform me, right? Like the same way the first time that I saw my wife whenever we got married was just like this transformational experience that I go back to in those times whenever we're not getting along or like the kids are bothering us or like we can't ever get any alone time or whatever it is, you know? Um, I just want something that I'm looking for beauty and I'm looking for truth and I'm looking for... um, and wherever that's found, right, wherever that's found, whether it's within the pages of Scripture or within the traditions of the church or outside of it, mm-hmm. which is why, like, I'm, I'm pretty, you know, probably, people probably see me as, I can, my daughter, we are having a conversation, and uh, she was like, man, you've always been, like, pretty liberal, right? And I was like, no, I was kind of like, my, I was a little offended, like, kind of mm-hmm. like what, <laughs> what you were saying, like, no, like, you know, I was... I was super conservative, but through my relationship, another thing that really bothers me, dude, that really bothers me, and I'm just going to throw this pet peeve out there, and, and, and I'll probably wake up tomorrow and think, oh, I probably shouldn't have said it this strongly. Like whenever people say that I'm ignoring the Bible, mm-hmm. like whenever I articulate some kind of like theo- theological um, point or or something about God, and I'm like, no, like I'm, I'm progressive in – a lot of my perspectives, not in spite of scripture, but because of it, mm-hmm. right? You know, um, so, so you can have a high regard for scripture like we were talking about earlier on and still come to different conclusions. My freshman year in college at Texas Tech, no, my sophomore year, sorry, at Texas Tech, um, we, I was taking a poetry class and um, we read The Rhyme of the Ancient Mariner, which is by Coleridge and I don't know if you've read it or not but it's like Mm -hmm. this you know it's like this epic poem about this old sailor that shows up at this wedding and he's got this huge albatross you know this like huge bird just like tethered to his neck 
And the party guests and the groom and the bride are like really thrown back by the audacity of this nasty, smelly, stinky old sailor dude with this dead bird hanging on of him, like showing, you know, showing up to their wedding. And so he starts to tell his story. Um, And all along, Coleridge is like telling the story. He's making side notes and footnotes. And as you study the text, you realize that like sometimes the the side notes and the end notes seem to contradict what the story that you're hearing in the poem. Mm-hmm. And and so our teacher, I can remember it, she asked us, she said, like, so is this poem about the preservation and conservation of nature? And most everybody in the in the in the class was like, Yeah, because like this dude kills an alb- albatross and and he's and he his hell is to wear this thing around his neck and tell people of his, his tale of why you shouldn't shoot albatrosses or whatever. Mm-hmm. Albatross. I don't know. And then she would take us back through the text and she'd say, well, what about this? Or what about this? Or what about this footnote that says this? And she would open up the, the, the contradictions to us. And I can remember that she said, she said, if you come to the conclusion at the end of this poem, that this is a poem about nature, and you've incorporated the the seeming contradictions and the footnotes that seem to tell a different story into your interpretation, then that's a faithful interpretation. Mm-hmm. But if you completely like disregard the the contradictions and the differences and the different perspectives that the author put into this thing, then it's an inappropriate interpretation because it's not thorough. It's not intellectually honest. You can't just like scrub out different things. Um, which is what I think that we do with scripture so many times is that we say, I don't like that, so I'm going to disregard it. Well, no, we should wrestle with it and allow it to ch- change us. You know, It should change us. It is, should be transformational. Is there anything in the – well, I guess let me ask you more, more specifically. What do you think if there are certain kind of fundamental basics to being able to call yourself a Christian – if there are, if, if in, in your opinion, there are, there, okay, if you don't believe this, I, I mean, you're not really a Christian. Like, what is the one or a few things? So I think it's really difficult to call yourself a Christian if you are racist, because even though the scripture does have places where slavery seems to be you know, Paul acknowledges the reality of slavery. There's this book called about Onesimus, this escaped slave. It's called Philemon, and it's like the the shortest epistle. And Paul is pleading with uh, uh, Philemon to welcome his slave back, not as a slave, but as a brother. But Paul never says like it was wrong for you to have had him as a slave in the first place, right? Mm-hmm. Which is troubling. But the overarching reality of Scripture, I think is that human beings are created with dignity, that they're created in the image of, of the divine, however you acknowledge, you know, however you interpret that, um, and that we don't treat people differently because of exterior or even interior, you know, parts of their personality or their makeup. So I think it's really hard to call yourself a Christian uh, and hold racist, bigoted views. Now, Church history would tell me that most of the people that have called themselves Christians over the years were, yeah, I mean, like, in my friends who are atheists are like, dude, 
you're totally sidestepping a whole bunch of stories in the Bible, right? Like it says it right there. Like it's, it's the, if anyone is a Christian, it's the KKK. If anyone is the, is a Christian, it's like the, the Nazis, right? Like this is, this is the, as Christopher Hitchens would say, like it makes complete sense that, that Christians would have slaves and things like that because all they had to do is read the Bible and on the surface, that's what I mean. Um, Mm. Do I believe in any theological distinctives to be a Christian? Well, yeah, I mean, I think that, it's hard to be a Christian without um, an acknowledgement that there's something special and meaningful about the life and testimony of Jesus. Mm-hmm. But Jesus was like, I'm less concerned about like being a Christian and I'm more concerned about being a follower of Jesus or like a person who walks in the way of God. And Jesus, whenever, whenever he's asked over and over and over and over and over and over again, like what are the essentials for me to be okay with like God and with, and with, he says, love God and love your neighbor as yourself, right? This is, and Paul says it in Romans 12, which is like Christianity 101. He goes through all of this thing, like, hey, if you want to be a follower of Jesus, like this is what it takes. And none of it is really theological distinctives. It's all about the way we treat the people around us. Mm. It's all about the way we treat people who are different than us because the church in Rome is like fractured. You have Gentile Christians and you have Jewish Christians and the Gentile Christians kind of take over because the Jewish Christians have been expelled, right? And then the Jewish Christians come back and they're like, what the hell are you doing? Like, this is not the way we do church, right? That We don't eat that kind of meat or we don't sing those kinds of songs. And the Gentiles are like, what do you mean? Like, you've been gone for all these years and who are you to come in and tell us that our experiences are not authentic? And so Paul, when he writes to them, he's suturing this fractured community together. And in, and in Romans 13, he says, like, he says that, that, the, that the essence of, of the law is, is love of neighbor. And, and in this beautiful passage, he says, love does no harm to its neighbor. But what he's really saying is, and I can't remember the actual title, like the, the type of, uh, of figure of speech it is, but he's basically saying like love greatly benefits your neighbor. And so for me to be a follower of Jesus or a person who is like, I don't think that, the, I think that there are people who are Christians, but don't know it. And then I think there are people who are Christians, but are the furthest thing from a follower of Jesus. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and so, so I guess, I don't know that I just, I guess I'm just not as concerned about that label. Um, even though I want people to be baptized, I want people to experience resurrection. I want people to like, um, so what is it about wanting people to be baptized and, and come to church? Like what, what is it that you're wanting for them in that? Yeah, I think that connection, mm-hmm. um, whenever I think about like what, Peter has this like, yeah, I, this is like going to be completely like non-inspirational what I'm about to say. <laughs> and I'm not a pragmatic person. I'm like I'm, I'm not a pragmatist, but there's this passage and Peter is like, where else would I go? Mm-hmm. And I kind of come to Jesus like that all the time. I'm like, you know, I start, I was working on a song a few years ago. Uh, and I was I basically asking that question, like, where else would I go? Like, I, I don't, I don't have a home other than here. And so, um, I don't know where else I would go. So, and I want other people to experience that. And, and for some people, church is that thing for a lot of people, it's not. Um, and, and so I'm interested in cultivating the types of communities where people can come together and feel healed and whole and welcome. Mm-hmm. 
and um and it rarely looks like a conventional church building and anything that I've been involved with. And I still travel and preach and speak. Uh, and I'm not like speaking out of both sides of my mouth. Like this conversation that we're having is one that I've had with plenty of people who have organized conferences. But the invitation for me all the time is that if you want to transform the world, then I invite you to follow Jesus because in so doing, like we link arms and we leave creation in our wake, you know? Um, but if somebody came and was like, I just can't get there intellectually, I can't get there. Well, okay. Like serve somebody else. Mm -hmm. That's good enough for Jesus. That seems to be good enough for Jesus. Are you loving somebody else? So based on, based on that idea and then also based on your current, I guess, relationship with Christianity, um, what is your view on other religions? Um, other religions. That's great. So I, I find beauty in them. I have friends that are, that are practitioners of other religions. I have one, one of my friends is, is Jane. He, he grew up in India, lives in Canada now. And, and that's the, that's the brand of Hinduism that, that Gandhi, um, followed. And so they have this concept called Nahimsa and Nahimsa means nonviolence. Right. And, mm-hmm. and the idea is from, so he remembers his mom, like waking up in the morning and like brushing the bugs off of the, the stove before she started to cook so that she wouldn't accidentally kill another living being. They had trees and plants in their yard and, and they ended up uprooting them and planting them elsewhere and just putting down, um, like stone because less less bugs would be there and they would accidentally step on them. So there's like a there's a part of that that's like fear based, but I think it's really beautiful. And Dr. King, in his ministry, is what I call it. Like his his life um, and witness, he ascribed to like that and saw it lining up with the teachings of Jesus, right? To turn the other cheek and enemy love. Um, I think that. My friend Mark Waters told me the story about um, a preaching series or like a, you know, there was like a theological conference at a seminary that he went to, Southern um, Baptist Seminary, which was not a fundamentalist um, seminary at the time. I don't even know if it is now. Um, and and a preacher got up and preached that passage from John about, about I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father but by me. And the next speaker was Hindu. And somebody asked him, like, how do you feel about that? He goes, yes, I believe it's true. He said that the only path to God is the path of sacrificial love. And so if your religion moves you toward the place of sacrificial love, then I think that it's true. Mm -hmm. Um, C.S. Lewis, dude, in the last Chronicles of Narnia, Aslan, um, you know, who's the Christ figure, uh, has this interaction with this character. And the character is like, had I known that you were true, you were the real one, I would have followed you. And Aslan says, basically, well, I ascribe all of your faithfulness and your agnosticism and your unknowingness to as if you had like known me by name, right? Mm-hmm. And so 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 I think that that the fundamental thing that Jesus teaches us is that that the love of God is inextricably bound to our love of other human beings. And so when Hindus kill Muslims in India, I don't think that they're really walking in the way of God, right? Mm-hmm. When Christians in uh, in Central African or, or the yeah the Central African Republic uh, are are murdering Muslims, um, 
I don't think that they're really walking in the way of Jesus. When we um, push out the immigrants from our country, I don't think that we're really living into the kingdom of God that's expressed not only in Christianity, but also in in, in other religions as well. Um, it, I'm not interested anymore in the question of who's in and who's out. Because what all that did for me was cause me to push some people away and welcome other people that were like me. I'm much more interested in the manifestation of love in this world through individual people. And so like I've been asking myself a lot lately about that. And is the thing that what it what motivates me in this moment? Am I motivated by love or something else? And if it's something else, why do I want to do it, right? Mm -hmm. Whether I'm going to do or say, um, there's this passage in in 1 John that says the perfect love, the perfect love of God dispels all fear, you know? And so I keep thinking about, well, I can't love anything or anybody perfectly. So if perfect love casts out all fear, then imperfect love, what I can give, will at least dispel a little bit of that darkness. And so Mm -hmm. I'm going to love imperfectly, you know? Um, And at the end of the day, I would rather Jesus say to me, like, you, man, you welcomed a whole lot more people than I wanted, than I wanted you to, rather than Jesus saying to me, dude, they were one of mine and like, you pushed them away. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I don't know. I mean, it's, um, I want to learn more. You know, there are some religions that I haven't studied very extensively. Um, and I want to always know more. And how can you love your neighbor? Like, even if you're, even if you're evangelical, even if you believe that Jesus is the way, the truth and the life, and you think about that literally, then not knowing what a Muslim believes is one way to completely disrespect the neighbor that you've been called to love. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. So, so if you're not willing to learn who your neighbor is, then you'll never have the conversations with them that you need to have, even if your end goal is for them to convert to the way of Jesus or to convert to Christianity. And I have friends who are Muslims and have converted, and they're beautiful, wonderful followers of Jesus. And we disagree on some theolo- theology, but we also agree on a lot. And I have other friends who are Muslim, who are Jain, uh, you know, who are Buddhists, and who are non-believers or don't, you know, agnostic atheists, and they live the way of sacrificial love. Their whole life is directed toward the betterment of people around them and i think you know like you look a lot more like jesus than i do right now you know which is one of the reasons why i became like affirming and and embracing in my in my um theology or or practice of of human sexuality i met gay people who were much more like jesus than i've ever been and i said how can that be if these things are not compatible how can they how can they be the face of love the face of christ for Mm -hmm. me Um, and, and, and so what that did is that took me back to scripture and that put a different lens for me to, for me to revise my understanding or, or, uh, of what the scripture is saying in those places where it seems to be saying, um, that the homosexuality is outside of the purview of God's perfect creation. Mm -hmm. I think, uh, I think a lot of my interpretation of the old Testament while being outside of Christianity has become. I think it was a a wise book of people saying things like if you treat like if you replace the the word God for reality, I think it works really well. So if you're like, hey, if you Mm. treat reality this way, this is what we have found that you will get in in turn. And so um, different things like the story of um, 
when the woman looked back and, and turned into stone. It's like that's yeah. that's a truth. If you treat reality that way and you <laughs> can't do anything but focus on the past, you'll never be able to move your feet. You will be in some real way turned into stone. It's not a story of this dictator who is like, hey, I gave you a rule. Don't disobey. It's also like the story yeah. of um, the guy who was holding uh, the Ark of the Covenant and yeah. God said, don't touch it, no matter what. And it was about to fall, and so he grabbed it to try to stop it, and he ended up dying. And a lot of people go, oh, okay, well, that's a story about God being some dictator who's so caught up on stupid rules that he's going to kill someone who's trying to help him. And it's like, no, I think, I think that's a story about reality being so far beyond our understanding that maybe there are some things that we just shouldn't toy with because we don't understand. Like, for example, to try to translate that, um, a lot of people are, <laughs> this is going to sound really weird at first, but hear me out. A lot of people are very anti-wildfire, which makes sense on the surface. We don't want all of our forests to burn down. But a lot of wildfires are actually really natural, and we're finding out over time that wildfires were meant to burn through the forest really fast and burn off all of the dead wood so then the trees could grow more healthy. And we try to prevent wildfires for so long because they look bad on the surface to us, and eventually we're not going to be able to stop them, but we've prevented them for so long that so much dead wood has built up, and then when the fire finally does come, it'll burn for so long and it'll burn so hot that it'll scorch the ground so nothing can ever grow there again. And so that's an example of us trying to do good, which is good, but there's something so, it's us not being able to be humble, us not being able to say, well, I want to help, but this is beyond my understanding. It's like mm. a guy goes up to a broken helicopter who has no idea about helicopters. I've used this way too many times, this example, but uh, but he <laughs> goes up to a helicopter. So yeah, yeah. But he's like... Um, you know, you can be as good intentioned as you like, but if you don't know what you're doing, if you can't be humble enough to go, you know what, I don't have the know-how to fix this problem. I realize there's a problem here, but it, I have to be humble enough to say this is beyond me and I have to be able to walk away from it and know that that's not a selfish move. That's not me trying to, to put off some work. It's, it's me admitting my ignorance and, um, so I, I think I take the Bible in that way when people ask about homosexuality. And even on, on, on me leaving Christianity, that's sort of how I viewed it, which was, you know, back in the day before they had sufficient um, medical know-how, a, right. a lot of different ways of, you know, probably um, homosexual relations could have led to a lot more diseases and a lot of people, a lot of people dying because of, of that way of, of having relations. And they see the, all these people dying and they see them doing this one thing, and so they go, oh, maybe we're not supposed to do that. So if you treat reality this way, this is what we've noticed. That so it's observational. Yeah. yeah, I think that there's there's definitely like a part of that. I also think that like the you know the 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 Old Testament you have to come at it from the perspective of like the Jewish community, right? Mm -hmm. And there are people like in the you know the Talmud is kind of like this. Um, like the teachings of the rabbis, right? And 
and they speak of Old Testament in different ways. It's a fractured community that's all having conversations. And and when we when we put our flag down and we say this is truth, it's absolute truth. My interpretation is the only way that it can be true. Um, then that leads us to two things. Number one, we're not being faithful to the historic, traditional, like way that people have had dialogue in matters of religion. Mm-hmm. And number two, when those things begin to crack, when they begin to fissure, we're just like, F this, I'm done with it. If this part isn't true, then none of it is true, you mm-hmm. know? Um, and maybe that's the experience that some of some of my friends have had where they're like, it was just so set in stone that if one of those stones like gets removed, Rob Bell said this in, in his book a long time ago called Velvet Elvis, if one if one stone of my theology is removed, then the whole wall falls down, you know? Mm-hmm. Well, that's not necessarily like what even the Old Testament is about mm-hmm. because people interpret it interpreted it differently as soon as it was written down, right? Probably even before it was written down, there are different interpretations. And when it comes to human sexuality, like I have a lot of, you know, I, I'm outspoken about it because I think it's a justice issue. The, the Especially in the church, we have held a community of people at at arm's length because we, we are, are we don't want to incorporate their reality into into ours because it seems to kind of push back against scripture. Well, if you come to that conclusion, it's just like the Coleridge thing. If you come to that conclusion, but you also like incorporate the fact that there are like six identifiable genders in the Hebrew language, that the eunuch in uh, in the book were were in Acts were. Philip is like on the road to Gaza and the eunuch comes in and the eunuch is like, you know, God welcomes the eunuch. Like, like if you, if you look at the sexual minorities in scripture um, and you still come out with the idea that like, well, no, like it's important for me to, you know, one man, one woman or whatever, I may disagree with you, but I'm at least going to respect you. But if you don't incorporate those things into your understanding of human sexuality. Well, I just think that you're putting on blinders mm-hmm. and that's not fair to you. And that's not fair to you're anybody else not to rock the boat. Yeah, exactly. And, and you're choosing and you're choosing to like disingenuously engage a text that is conversational in nature and, um, complicated, uh, and comes from a whole bunch of different backgrounds. You know, um, the old Testament, I, I really try to read that like as much as possible with with the perspective of somebody who's Jewish and I can't do that so I have to listen to a lot of Jewish rabbis that are still like they're just so you know they're still Jewish people and they're still teaching the Old Testament and like you can listen to them even if they're not Christian because they're going to highlight things that we didn't even know about you know because we're Christians mm-hmm. um right now today first day of Ramadan for our Muslim brothers and sisters Ramadan 40 days of fasting where they fast all day and then at night they celebrate and they and they can eat and then it's and then and then at the end of it is uh, is Eid E I D which is like the last celebration of the fast. I've been in the Holy Land while my Muslim brothers and sisters are fasting, and it's amazing to me that they do anything. Like I would like sit in my bed and all I would think about was like Chick Fil A or something like that. You know what I mean? <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, you know, there's truth there. There's truth there to be found about faithfulness, committedness, discipline, dedication, uh, uh, self-awareness, um, 
the orthodox there's this orthodox statement let your fast be the feast of the poor like my friends who are muslim during ramadan they're always like giving stuff away you know Mm -hmm. um and and to me i'm like okay that looks a lot like what jesus said whenever he says if you want to gain life you must lose it Mm -hmm. as well that anyone who wants to follow me must take up their cross you know and follow me and so so i'm always looking for jesus no matter where i'm looking um, and I can typically find it because you find what you're looking for. Like there's part mm-hmm. of that and maybe that's not intellectually honest, but I think it's poetic. So I'm going to keep doing it. Yeah. I, I think where I've come with, uh, how I view the world and view my spirituality is more of, more of, a trying to, trying to understand the universal language of spirituality. So when mm-hmm. I first, um, when I first like started not calling myself a Christian anymore, I talked to um, this guy named Tracy Fleet, who was my uh, yeah. therapist at the time, who has since passed away. Yeah, and he, he. We have that in common. Oh yeah, he was a <laughs> yeah. he's a freaking brilliant guy, man. I, I love him to death. I've known him since he's a friend of my dad, so I've known him for a long, long time. But yeah. uh, since he was a friend of my dad's, I kind of i I viewed him as a very kind of like a half father but half friend figure. And so it was like my trial run for telling my dad I wasn't a Christian was telling him. Wow. And uh, it was one of the last conversations we ever had, and it was a very beautiful conversation because I kind of expected him to be like, well, you need to come back to Jesus. That's the most important thing. But he was like very engaging in my conversation. I was talking about the universe and how I would had looked into Buddhism. And and I read this book called Man Seeks God that like has a chapter Mm -hmm. about all these different religions. Um, and it even explores some of the really out there religions, like like there's Wicca, but then there's also this one they call um, the Raelians, I think is how you pronounce it. But they're like, they think aliens are coming back in 20 years and that they planted uh, people here on Earth. So you think the most out there religions, but this guy spends like some serious time with them and gets to know them, gets to know what they believe and the people. And he's like, wow, like we'd look at this from the outside and laugh, but these are actually some beautiful people who have some beautiful ideas about the world and we look at them in this kind of caricature way Mm. um anyways but i was telling him things like that and he he kind of responded in in these really engaging questions and he was very interested and he he like looked at stuff and kept texting me about it but before that session was over i was asking him about i was asking him about my dad and i was saying you know do you think it's important for me to talk to my dad about this and if so how do you think i should do it and he said, if you want to talk to him about it, I think that's fine. But if you're asking if you feel like you need to, I don't think you need to. Because it seems to me like you have a similar understanding of the world that your dad does. You just have a different language with which you use to talk about it. Yeah. So you talk about Jesus. I mean, Jesus says, I'm the truth. Will you just say truth and you don't happen to say Jesus? But you're talking about the same thing. Hmm. Um. And so if you know that language, because that was the one that you were raised on, and he talks to you about stuff like that, it's not like you don't believe exactly what he's talking about. You just have a different way of understanding it. So I thought that was a really beautiful way to look at it, that I was like, and that's kind of how I take it when I talk to people of different religions or people of just Christianity. And I think of it as we're all talking about the same things, but we just use different languages to explain it. Like you said with that um, – that I think it was a Hindu who came up and they were like, what do you think about your know, Jesus is the only way to the father? And he's like, he's right. Sacrificial love is the only way to the father. It's like, that's just a different, that's the Christian language way of explaining it. But we're talking about the same thing. Yeah. I think that the, the, the premise, the primacy of language, that language is something that, that we have, 
Yeah, like, I, yeah, I mean, I just totally agree with that. I don't think, so to me, words matter. Mm-hmm. Words matter a lot. Like, they matter a lot. But it's because I'm a poet. Like, I'm a writer. I'm, some, I'm a songsmith. That's what, I, that's what I've dedicated my life to is words, like beautiful words strung together to mean something. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I think so much of the conflict that we experience is that we're saying things that the other person doesn't or can't understand, right? Mm-hmm. And so is there is there a way to find some common language where we realize that like what connects us is so much greater than what pushes us apart? Mm-hmm. Uh, I think that finding that common language um, is really helpful and even defining words. So like if I'm gonna go into a conversation with somebody that I know disagrees with me on some things, like I quoted Carl Sagan in a sermon once at a pretty conservative church uh and a guy came up at the end and he was like man it was beautiful i loved what you said but don't quote carl sagan because carl sagan you know is not a christian or whatever like this and and so i just begin to ask the question like like how how can we build bridges of understanding Mm -hmm. and part of one of the bridges that we can build is language whenever you hear the word carl sagan like what does that mean to you or the name carl sagan well it means somebody that doesn't believe in jesus doesn't believe in god whatever you know well whenever i hear carl sagan say that like you are stardust it reminds me of the words of jesus that you're a light uh on a hill right Mm. you know that 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 as you let your light shine like like to me like a star is something that shines right and so and even Paul says, like, like when you love your neighbor in, in Philippians, like when you are, are faithful to this way of Jesus, which is the way of sacrificial love, then you will shine like stars in a dark generation, right? And so so I, I, I listen to Carl Sagan say that stuff, and it doesn't, to me, it doesn't diminish anything about the reality of God or the, or the, or the, or the, or the truth of jesus you know to me it amplifies what jesus was already saying yeah i I think a a big part of the problem is is people wanting to um i i I don't know i'm trying to i'm trying to find a a proper way to say this without being without being rude to christianity i guess I i think people try to say that their specifics are the only specifics that can you know lead to anything glorifying and i'm reminded of uh have you read the case for christ yeah i read it a long time ago man i can remember having deep conversations with uh my friends about it who were atheists yeah well so that i read that book right after i was leaving christianity so instead of reading it as a christian being like yeah i read it as the atheist being like this is so dumb so i was getting (laughs) quite the opposite kind of perspective on it so it's funny to talk about it sometimes but I think one of my biggest problems with that book is that towards the beginning when, it, when he had he had asked somebody where he worked, how do I disprove Christianity? And this guy goes, well, if Jesus was historically not real, it's all a house of cards. And I was like, I don't think that's I don't think that's true. That's where my problem. That's where I have trouble calling myself a Christian, because for a while as an atheist, I was like, I don't believe Jesus was real. Um, like maybe there was a real guy named Jesus, but I don't believe that a guy actually came back from the dead. Um, I've come much more to a place of, I'm not concerned about it. Like, I think it's a beautiful story that has more truth in it than a historical story would have. Um, I think crazier things have happened. So if someone was like, do you think Jesus came back from the dead? I'd be like, I don't know. There's how would I know that was 2000 years ago. We have no access to the past. I I think there are a few things like I'm surprised that we don't have 
it, for something that crazy happening, I'm surprised that we wouldn't have more evidence on it. So if I was a betting man, I would probably bet, no, it didn't happen. But if you proved it to me, I'd be like, yeah, you know, crazy things have happened on this planet. But I, I would I would say I think you're missing the point. When some people get caught up on, is this literal? Is this a historical story? Um, some of the stuff Jordan Peterson says about it that I think is so great is he's like, this was written before the scientific method came out. This was not written to be interpreted in some kind of scientific way. It was written as like, you know, people make fun of Christianity by calling it a fairy tale. And I'm like, whoa, whoa, I don't think you're giving enough respect to fairy tales. Fairy tales have <laughs> some serious truth in them. Um, so that's kind of the problem I had with it when he says, you know, Jesus didn't historically come back to life. It's a house of cards. I don't think so. I think there's more truth and beauty in Christianity than some history book. I think it's, it's a, I think it's a, a sadly limited way of viewing the Bible. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I, uh, I can, I can remember being really big into apologetics and like proving uh, the reality of of Jesus, the historical Jesus, as well as you know the the affirming the literal resurrection of Christ. And I think I'm still there. Like you know, I have my reasons why I think that you know it makes sense that Jesus would be resurrected, the firstborn of many. Like I I, I think that I. But at the same time, if somebody doesn't come to that conclusion. I can understand why not. Mm -hmm. And then the question is, well, what is the story trying to say? Like, what is the, why would this group of Jewish followers of Jesus, disciples of Jesus, need him to be resurrected from the dead in order to move on uh, with this movement? You know, um, what is the, what is the necessity of that? And resurrection for me has become a part of my theology of apocatastasis that everything belongs, that everything will be made right, mm -hmm. you know, um, that that's the work of Jesus, that that's the work of God through Jesus. That's the work of the church is to reconcile all things. Um, so I guess, I guess a more specific question I'd like to ask you kind of directly is, Go for it. I know there's not really a way to prove it to you, but if there were some kind of way to prove to you that Jesus well, first of all, if he didn't come back from the dead, but and I, I believe there was a guy named Jesus, but say we prove to you that Jesus didn't even exist. It was all completely a legend made out of thin air. Would that destroy your faith? No, no, I don't think it would because I guess I'm just not, I, I just think that there's enough evidence to suggest that Jesus did live historically. Uh, and, you know, maybe, maybe it's all, maybe it's all made up. Even so, I think that I would still consider myself a follower of Jesus in the same way that I would consider myself a disciple of Martin Luther King Jr., in the same way that I would uh, consider myself um, a disciple of Dorothy Day, in the same way that I would consider myself um, somebody who, who who follows, who walks in the way of Gandhi or like um, nonviolent resistance. You know, it, it's... Um, people will probably be offended by that. And like, if I put this on my, you know, in my own community, then maybe like all of my speaking engagements will like go down the tube. I don't know. I'm willing to, I'm willing for that to happen, um, at the expense of authenticity. Um, 
I guess that question just doesn't make sense to me because it's not about that. It's not about the factual Jesus. It's about the reality that I've experienced. And even if Jesus is just an avatar for like our higher selves or like the universal Christ that, that Richard Rohr talks about, you know, um, our cosmic Christ, not universal Christ, the cosmic Christ um, is an expression of who we are when we're living into our full nature as human beings or as divine beings. Um, even if it gets like, like I'm just like, I, I need Jesus. Like I need Jesus to exist and I need Jesus to have risen from the dead. And I need Jesus to, um, be for the, the, the orphan and the, and the, and the widow and, and, um, um, yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's kind of unique. Like, I don't know that I've ever considered, I think I just moved beyond that conversation or like it's so David White is a poet and he said, and he talks about like, you know, not all the questions that you're asked are your questions to answer. Mm-hmm. And I just don't think that that's my question mm-hmm. right now in my life. Um, what if Jesus wasn't factually real? Well, to, to uh, give you, to give you fair credit, that's, I mean, that was a really good answer. Answer. I think. I think that's kind of where I am. That I'm. I'm just on the teetering on the opposite side, where that you believe that Jesus probably did exist, and I'm kind of like, well, I. I'm not even super comfortable, just because I don't see the purpose of of saying like whether I did or not, because I don't think it's about that. Um, so I, I'm kind of in a in a similar boat to it. Um, yeah, I'm not like I'm not like the like I used to have a theology of like either Jesus was is the son of God, he's who he says he is, or he was a crazy man, you know, because mm-hmm. he manipulated people and stuff like that. Well, no, like um, I don't I don't see that Jesus is complicated. There are some things that I think that I don't understand about the ministry and the teachings of Jesus, especially some of the parables um, that he teaches and some of the things that he says, but. Um, but that's part of the journey of faith, right? Is like coming up against, butting up against things you don't understand and wrestling through that. Mm. Uh, it's not simplistic. It might, you know, maybe it's simple to say that loving God and loving your neighbor, whether they're your friend or your enemy, is kind of like the core of what it means to follow Jesus or to follow God. That sounds simple, but it's not simplistic, right? Mm. Like it's not simplistic in the sense of like the Bible says that I believe it, that settles it. Like to me, that's just like, I'm just going to, it's prescriptive. It's not narrative. If I tell my kids, we talked about this today, like, you know, the best theology that I've ever had comes from my kids whenever they push me on something. And they're like, well, you need to have control over your kids, right? And I was like, I don't think I have any control over y'all. And they're like, what do you mean? And I said, well, like, we can create a system of rewards and consequences. Um, But really, and you can like either choose to, to, to follow or not, but it's your choice. Like you can choose to, to be quote unquote controlled by us, but really the heart of it, why we do the things we do as a family is because our narrative as a, as a family, our, our story as a family is that we want to be kind and considerate. We want to ask good questions and solve problems. We want to be a good friend. And we always want to remember the, that mom and dad love us. Like that's our daily affirmation. So that's our story. That's our core value. That's like the vision of our family and everything we do stems from that. Does it fit within that narrative? And if it doesn't, why doesn't it? it? Do we need to change our narrative in order to accommodate a new reality that we're experiencing as a family or, or are our actions out of line with like 
you know, being kind to our brother or sister, Mm -hmm. being kind to our parents or being kind to our kids, right? Like it's always this dialogue and conversation with our experience, with tradition. John Wesley said it like this. There's a, there's a, the Wesleyan um, quadrilateral. And I love, and I love this idea of like spiritual investigation that we have scripture, that we have tradition, that we have our experience and then we have um, we have oh, we have our experience we have a scripture tradition our experience and then reason and we utilize those things to move toward an understanding of truth so mm-hmm. so if you're reading the scripture and it's not critically engaging it then you're not like really loving god with all your mind right mm-hmm. and if you're and if you're interpreting scripture only through the context of church history and tradition, or if you're holding on to tradition at the expense of something that you find in scripture or the experience with the Holy spirit, they hold each other accountable. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah, and- I, there's a, there's a story that I'm reminded of. Let me see if I can get it exactly right. But I think it's like, it's something you might remember it, but if there's a, a father who says, Hey, um, if you touch that cake, like, um, God, I'm going to screw Yeah, up. like, like I'm going to, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm going to kill you. Yeah, I'm going to kill you or something like that. And then, and then he leaves and then the guy touches the, the kid touches brother, the cake and then his brother kills yeah. him and he comes back and he's like, he's like, why did you do that? And he's like, well, you said that, he, you know, he, he needed to be killed if he touched the cake. And he's like, I would hope that you would know me enough that that your image of me would be held above your literal interpretation or, or misunderstanding of what I said. Well, and I think that probably somebody that had power over the cake that wasn't the father introduced that concept to their kids. So the father never said, if you, if you take a bite of that cake, I'm going to kill you. Mm -hmm. But somebody who wanted that cake said to those kids, Hey, dude, I'm pretty sure your dad would kill you if you had that cake. That's probably, you know, that cake is very important to him. Mm-hmm. Because I think a lot of religion is built around power and who's in power and why they want to hold on to power, mm-hmm. you know? Um, if if the Bible is the Magna Carta, Carta of the, uh, uh, Magna Carta of the poor, then that means something to people who are in power and who aren't poor, right? Mm-hmm. And, and so... So my question is always like maybe the kid didn't misinterpret the words of the father, but like maybe the father never said that, but somebody introduced that narrative from another perspective. And so Jesus says all the time, you've heard it said, but I say unto you, mm-hmm. you've heard it said, like love, love your, love your friends and hate your enemies. But I say unto you, if somebody strikes you on your right cheek, turn and give them your left as well. You've heard it said, you know, to walk a mile, you know, it's like Jesus is always questioning the narratives that have been interjected into his understanding of who God is and, and, and the nature of God, not only the nature of God, but also what God has said in the past, you know? And so, so, or how we've heard God in the past. And so to me, God would never even be so frivolous with his language that he would say, if you touch that cake, I'm going to kill you. Mm -hmm. One of the things I appreciate about Jesus and the, and the way that he interpreted scripture was I guess this might not be the best word, but how sly he was able to go about it when people were constantly trying to catch him, and they thought that the way that he was living contradicted the you know the scriptures that they had, and so they would come up with things like um, 
an example of uh, the woman who had committed adultery and they, they want to catch Jesus. And they're like, Hey, we know Jesus is this kind of pacifist who isn't going to do anything, but technically according to scripture, she should be stoned. So here we're going to put him in where he has to either identify himself as a heretic or go against his own teachings. And he's able to get out of it like really slyly and go, no, I do believe you're right. She should be stoned for this. However, here's the thing that you're missing is that, the one who should stone her is the one without sin, which doesn't exist because you're supposed to right. worry about yourself. So he's able to keep the authenticity of what was originally said and extract the wisdom, but leave out the kind of dogmatic, fundamental, I don't know, warped interpretation of it, I think. The very the very shallow well, interpretation of it. And that's a good passage to bring up in terms of, in regards to interpretation of scripture, because in some of the earliest manuscripts, it doesn't appear in John 8. Yeah. Uh, and so the question is like, well, you know, did that happen or is it apocryphal? If it's apocryphal, then what is the church that wrote it or the people that wrote it, the community that wrote it, trying to say not only about their understanding of Jesus, but also their understanding of sin and, and human beings. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I tend to think that it happened just because it makes sense for Jesus to like... Mm-hmm do that you know to well stand part on the of side it is open. part of it is it comes from you know a lot of a lot of legends were being told about jesus at the time and uh all of the gospels you know were written you know much later than when they actually happened it's not like it was happening and some guy was writing it down as it was happening it was that these things were transferred yeah. word of mouth and then eventually they got to the people that wrote it down so yeah that yeah, was, it was a that, synthesis yeah, so that one we do believe based off of uh, the manuscripts we had that it was added in later, but I kind of look at it that as especially being on the other side of it and not worrying about if it was a literal interpretation. Right. In my eyes, it's another one of those things that it's like that goes along with who I I think it it stays in the kind of vein of who Jesus was, at least the... Right, and if... What did you say? Not the universal yeah, Jesus, but the... The, the cosmic Christ, mm-hmm. like, like, you know, the, the, the idea of, of the Messiah being, um, ever present. Mm-hmm. And, and I have to like, and I also have to, if I'm going to be honest and have intellectual integrity, the parts of the scripture or of the life and teachings of Jesus that don't jive with who I think he is, I, I have to, I have to deal with those as well. And I can't just say, well, I don't think Jesus would do that. You know, mm-hmm. uh, I have to say, well, maybe Jesus did. Maybe Jesus is more complex than I thought. Maybe I'm missing something, which is why I always come back to scripture, like in reading it. And there are sometimes whenever I don't read it for a long time because I'm just done with it, I can't handle it. And, you know, I'm probably pretty sloppy in terms of like daily disciplines whenever it comes to prayer and things like that. I think a lot and I want my life to align with the vision uh, that Jesus has mm-hmm. uh, of the kingdom of God or the reality of God. But, um, you know, I'm not. I'm not as disciplined as maybe I could be or should be. You know, there's there's a lot that goes into that. I've, um, I've so I um, have an interesting, maybe let me see if I can put this in the form of a question. But since I've left Christianity, I guess what you could say I've replaced prayer with is meditation, which is a typical kind of New Age thing to do. Um, it's like super old age, man. <laughs> well, right, right, but it's <laughs> yeah. it's the New Age thing to to become an, a nun, as they would call it, and then replace prayer with meditation. Um, But at first I was very uh, strict about it and tried to be on a very strict schedule, making sure that I meditated every day, every morning. Mm. Um, 
And I did it for a while and I found myself kind of getting stressed out about it. And I was like, that's weird. Meditation is supposed to kind of bring me to the present moment and, and relieve some of my stress. But instead it's stressing me out because especially if I ever was in too much of a hurry and I would miss meditation, I would kind of feel awful day. It's like, I didn't take my meds and I'm like, God, I can't, I can't be okay today because this is like, it's actually made me more stressed out. And I was listening to Alan Watts and I read a lot of him, but, but, one of the things he said in one of his lectures specifically was if you feel like you have to do meditation, if meditation is not something that you want to do, but you think it's this kind of discipline that's good for you, it's like taking medicine that doesn't taste good, but ultimately it's good for you, you're doing it wrong and you shouldn't do it. And I was like, that's an interesting mm. way to look at it. And he's like, because it's supposed to be something that you look forward to, that you enjoy doing while you're doing it. And if you don't feel that way, you're not doing it right. And so that's kind of the approach that I have to it now that I meditate when I want to meditate, when I feel. So there are sometimes I go three or four days without meditating and some days where I'll meditate for, you know, an hour and a half, which sounds dramatic. But, uh, you know, and every meditation session is not necessarily sitting down with my eyes closed. Sometimes I will, um, you know, go on a walk and just focus on my breathing and focus on being here and focus on kind of the present moment while not necessarily it yeah. looking as traditional um, because then it becomes something that actually does what it was intended to do is it relieves my stress and it makes me feel like I can be here and not be worried about the past or anxious about the future. And yeah. so I, I recognize that in, in an issue that I had with prayer when I was a Christian is that I made it an everyday mm. thing. I did it and I did it more consistently than meditation, which was I did it every morning in the middle of the day and every night. And I felt like if I didn't do that, it was almost like I had broken some kind of contract with God. And it stressed me out because we we're supposed to be like, you know, we kind of tell ourselves as Christians, hey, you know, as long as you're reading and you're praying, you're going to be doing good mentally. And then I don't know about other people because I can't speak for them. But for me, I would be reading and I would be praying but I'd be stressed out all the time. But you kind of smile through it and be like, you yeah, know, you know, it's good. I'm, I'm doing good. And so that, that might've been part of a uh... man. Yeah. Dave Bazan, he, he, uh, had a band called Pedro the line and he, um, he charts his, I don't know if you've listened to his music at all. No, um, you should definitely. So he kind of charts his journey, his conversion, his deconversion away from, from Christianity. Uh, in one of his early albums, he, he says, uh, if, if all that's left is duty, I'm falling on my sword, right? Mm. And uh, at least then I wouldn't serve an unseen uh, Lord, unseen something Lord. And and I think that there's a lot of like, you know, the duty of of discipline sometimes sucks the life out of it. And yet I think that we can gain something through struggle. Mm -hmm. I think we can gain something whenever we do something we don't want to do. Um, and it's not necessarily that, that the stress that it creates is good for us, but that there's a way for us to view that struggle and view that, that stressful time or that feeling of, you know, it kind of comes ba back to, is God going to smite me if I don't do this? Mm -hmm. So I'm going to do it. Or is this beneficial for me, even if I don't like it, like eating broccoli is, or like eating Brussels sprouts is, you know, maybe I'll grow to like it. Mm -hmm. Or even if I don't, I realize that there's a benefit to it, you know? And so my relationship with prayer and meditation, um, it shifts just like in my relationship with my wife or my kids or friends, you know, uh, it doesn't always, 
Um, it doesn't always take on the same texture. And I think that that's okay. And sometimes I just have to realize that like I'm wrong, mm -hmm. you know, and I need to go back to that discipline. And then other times it's like, dude, why are you getting so hung up on, you know, the duty of the duty of prayer, the duty of scripture and stuff like that, man. So the last question pertaining to the Bible that I have is uh, a, a big thing for me when I first became a self-proclaimed atheist, when people would try to convert me back or, or kind of just have a conversation with me about it was uh, I would say, I don't understand what Jesus did that I couldn't do. And they would say, well, you know, he lived a life without sin. And I go, okay, but how do you know that I haven't lived a life without sin? And then they would say, well, you, you can't because you have a sin nature. And I go, well, I, I don't see how that's fair. If Jesus didn't have a sin nature, well, give me a shot at a life without a sin nature. And just, I mean, hey, like maybe I'll screw it up, but at least I'll have a shot. Yeah. And then, um, and then I'd say, you know, like is, is the punishment eternal torment or whatever? And they say, well, you know, hell, yeah, is the punishment for, for your sin. And I go, okay, so Jesus is in hell right now. And they go, well, no, Jesus is in heaven. And I go, well, I don't understand what he did then. Because is it just the death? Because, I mean, I'm not saying that it, he didn't, you know, he wasn't beaten, didn't go through a lot of crap. But, you know, that is temporary stuff. And I'm like, I don't know if it's talking about eternal torment or, or kind of surrendering to a lot of stuff that I don't know about. I'd be curious, how, how could I not do that? Because other people have been tortured who weren't Jesus. And other people have died who weren't Jesus. So uh, I, one of the reasons I, I kind of was reminded to talk to you about the Bible on this podcast was something that you had posted about yeah, yeah Jesus and, and in relation to <laughs> hell. And I was curious about that. <laughs> yeah. So sometimes my wife says that I stir the pot too much and I intentionally don't do that, but I think I was uh, on that day. And so my culpa, I was definitely trying to like shock people into thinking. Yeah. So have you seen the, the movie inception? Yes, I have. Yeah, dude. So it's one of my favorite films. And I was thinking about, as I was kind of like coming to terms with like my universalism or my universalist tendencies, I was thinking about this piece of the Nicene creed, which is like one of the earliest, like kind of rallying cries of, of the Christian community. And whenever I say early, it's like 300. So like the, the, the religion is like 250 years old or something like that by this time. And they say, uh, you know, that, that when they talk about their affirmation of faith in Jesus, he died, descended into hell and rose again. And I'm like, okay. And Peter talks about it a little bit that Jesus descended into hell. And so I, so in inception, it's this idea of like the dream states being levels of depth, right? So mm -hmm. like if you go into the first dream and then you have a dream within a dream and then a dream within a dream within a dream, and the further you go into that kind of um, nesting doll dream situation, the the longer time becomes. Mm -hmm. So like 15 seconds out here becomes two hours in the first dream and then the dream within the dream, that same 15 minutes is like three months. And then by the time you get down to like the deepest type of dream state, you know, it still seems like 15 minutes on earth, but you're down there eternally. Mm -hmm. What feels like eternity. And so this is like, this is just like me thinking mm -hmm. it has nothing to do with like a real theology, though. It wouldn't surprise me if it was true. Maybe it's true and not factual, or maybe it's fact that if Jesus is in the grave, for 
48 hours or 72 hours. And Shakespeare said to sleep for chance to dream, right? Like he thinks about like the afterlife as some type of dream state. Then mm-hmm. Jesus was asleep or in a dream state for a really long time, mm-hmm. right? And so it could be that Jesus in a reality that is not temporal, right? Because we would see heaven and hell as outside of time, mm-hmm. eternal, right? So if he steps out of time in his death, then there's a then then in those three days, Jesus could have traversed all that we know of time in this reality of separation from God, releasing prisoners, opening the gates. Because Paul even talks about him emerging like with the that he holds the keys to sin and death, that he holds the keys to hell, right? Mm-hmm. You know? And so if Jesus is victorious and if Jesus went down there and like took the keys from from evil itself and death itself and sin itself, then over those that three day temporal time, Jesus could still be like traversing all of time because he's an eternal in an eternal you know reality and so so it doesn't make sense logically but if you like the movie inception then maybe you'd understand like kind of where i'm coming from and if you Mm. and if you read shakespeare you know hamlet is the one who says that in um uh in you know, I, I don't know, man. It just like like Mother Teresa said, like if I'm going to be a saint, let me be a saint uh, of darkness. Mm-hmm. You know, living outside of the gates of heaven, amongst the refuse. Like that, that's kind of the distillation of her idea. And I think Jesus would, you know, um, like if there's if Saint Peter is at the gates, the pearly gates, and if Saint Peter is like keeping track of who comes in and who comes out. I think that Jesus is on the back side of the wall, like with bolt cutters and like, you know, cutting the fence and welcoming people in the back way, right? Mm-hmm. You know, I just think that Jesus is subversive and um I don't think that Jesus would want to experience a reality apart from uh the hurting and the broken and the needy. And if you think about hell, whether it's literal or just the reality in which we live Mm -hmm. because some people are are living in hell right now right Mm -hmm. and we do that man we do that as privileged western christians we say that like you who are already living in hell when you die if you're a yemeni muslim who is under attack by the saudi government and you haven't eaten for 60 days or 70 days or you're you're just skin and bones and you die without saying the lord's prayer or the or the prayer of this the sinner's prayer then you're going to expend spend eternity in hell i'm just like why would we what a privileged what a privileged theology we have if we would damn other people to hell who have already experienced this hell especially when jesus in the gospel of luke talks about the rich man and lazarus like mm-hmm. lazarus is outside of the gates of luxury and it's the rich man within the gates of luxury who never gave a fuck about his brother outside of the gates that that ends up separated from from god and from community and i don't think that god sent that dude to hell in Jesus's story because the story of Dives, which is what we know is like kind of like a traditional story that Jesus co-ops for his own, mm-hmm. you know, for his own purposes or his own agenda. You know, I think that the dude's selfishness kind of, Jesus is saying like in our selfish, selfishness, if we erect walls instead of bridges, then we're going to find ourselves walled in. We're going to find ourselves isolated because that's just the natural consequence. And for me, 
Jesus would eternally be trying to break down those walls that we built up around ourselves. Um, and so, you know, three days of perpetual sleep in the deepest dream state there is, you know, mm-hmm. could really transfer, translate into a, 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 a pers- you know, I mean, just like, yeah, I don't think that, I don't, I don't know, man. I don't, I don't know. I love Jesus because he seems to, you know, always move toward people that don't make the cut, right? Mm-hmm. You know, and those are the people that really need presence and love and compassion and understanding, all the things that I think Jesus taught us. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's why that's kind of how I want to live my life, right? Yeah. So if it's if it's the if it's the gatekeepers of heaven that are that are mad at me, then I'm a lot more okay with that than. Um, than the people that don't have any, you know, anybody else to, to advocate and ampl- amplify their voices. Mm-hmm. Um, so okay, cool. maybe I'm a humanist, maybe I'm a secular humanist and just don't know it. Maybe I'll grow <laughs> into that awareness at some point and, and it'll all be okay. As of now, I find that truth within the reality and existence and witness of Jesus. Yeah. I think what has brought me back is because what kept me as maybe an anti-theist for a minute, uh, because I think I was just, when you learn, or at least when I thought that I had learned that, you know, I had been thinking incorrectly for so long, I wanted to turn my back on all of it. And I think one of the big teach teachers who brought me back was, um, brought me back to finding the wisdom in Christianity was Brennan Manning. Do you know who that is? Yeah, dude. Yeah. I mean, his teachings and, uh, have been absolutely foundational for me. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I, yeah. I, want, I know you got to go pretty soon, but I wanted to put that out there for anybody who 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 was curious about what I think is is some of the the better wisdom of of Christianity. I think he's able to find some of those pockets. But before you go, I want to ask you to if you if you could kind of give me some kind of idea yeah. of your film and and where yeah, we can man. find it. So as a as a fellow film aficionado and filmmaker, mm-hmm. right? Um, so my parents were missionaries in the West Bank. My sister was born in the Gaza Strip. So in 2017, I had gotten a grant to do some digital storytelling. And, and my friend Nathan Driscoll is a filmmaker. And um, at first, it was going to be like people I knew around town and just kind of telling these stories so that we could see people as human beings, right? And then I, I was like, you know what, man? I've got this money. Let's go back uh, and shoot a series of like 10 documentary shorts about people that are building bridges in, in, in an area of the world where there's just like so many barriers that have been built yeah. literally and figuratively. And so I, I called my, my, my friend Nathan. I was like, Hey dude, you want to go? And uh, he was like, yes, man, I would love to, I would love to go and do this, this film project with you. Let me figure out if I can get off work. He could get up. He's like, when are we going to go? I was like, we have to leave in 30 days. He's like, what dude, how am I supposed to like get all this together in 30 days? That's my window, dude. 30 days at the end of May, because I'm starting a new job at a church in July. And so this is the time that I have. Mm-hmm. And I called my sister and I did the same thing. And she was like, dude, I don't even have my passport updated, man. So how are we going to do this? So Memorial Day is when her passport comes in. Post office is closed, right? Mm-hmm. We're supposed to leave the next day. So it's like 11th hour. We figure it out. We have a friend that works in the post office and, and she gets it for us, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, which is really, really cool subversive way of getting out of the country so all that to say the film that emerged for us when we got on the ground was so different than what we thought it was going to be uh and so the the film is where is palestine 
Um, and it's uh, an exploration of the, the Palestinian narrative through the lens of individual Palestinians that are living under occupation in the West Bank, in Israel, in Jordan, and then even um, a, a girl from uh, a w- woman, she's not a girl, she's a college student uh, from the States that's Palestinian American. Um, and, uh, in the, in the film, it's a short documentary film, 25 minutes. You can go to whereispalestine.film and you can watch it for free. Mm-hmm. Uh, we chose to, we chose to make it free because so many people are at home, like looking for things to watch. And we really want people to hear these stories. Mm-hmm. We were going to go like the, you know, like the, the festival circuit for a while and, uh, and, just because of some hangups with the with some licensing with some music, we, we just couldn't move on it, uh, and so we just released it. And th- after the licensing was all taken care of, and so yeah, um, it's called Where's Palestine. Um, it's not a big political film. Mm-hmm. It's a it's a very human film that's rooted in the stories of individuals uh, who who share how the occupation, specifically home demolitions, uh, have affected. Um, have affected them and their families. Um, uh, and yeah, man, we, we premiered it at the Paramount at the end of 2018. Uh, and our friend Rafat Shomali from, from Beit Zahor, which is right outside of Bethlehem, he came uh, and we had conversations. We also did a soft uh, premiere down in Waco mm-hmm. um, as part of Baylor's Film Festival for the fall. Uh, it's been on PBS uh, in Lubbock, El Paso, uh, areas. Um, and, uh, the plan is to distribute it through Amazon prime and then also through PBS. And so, um, there's a lot of ways you can watch it, but if you go to whereispalestine.film, uh, you can watch it there and then fill, you know, give us some feedback no matter where you are politically or religiously. Um, I'll tell you something about how I, how I found myself in 2013 in Bethlehem, uh, breaking up with Jesus. Um, but that'll have to be for another conversation if you'll have me back. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I would love to, I'd love to come back. Yeah. I want to say, I, I, I just, before you go, I just want to mention, I, I think it was really interesting and as a non-Christian saying it was God's work putting us together at this point in time, because initially I had reached out to you, I think over a year ago to be on the podcast and our schedules yeah. just couldn't line up around that time. And that was before I had, I think, officially just dis- decided that I wasn't a Christian yet. And so I was questioning a lot and wanted to ask you a lot of stuff about that. And then I didn't reach out for a yeah, long sorry time. Sorry I wasn't there for you. No, you're good, man. You're good. Um, but I didn't reach out for a long time because I had kind of become an atheist. And, and it's not because I was like anti-you, but it was like, I don't see how that conversation would be productive because I'd be... You know, do you think it's literal? Well, I don't think it is. And, you know, I don't I don't see the the brilliance in the book and I don't see this. And so it wouldn't have really gone anywhere. But but very recently, uh, mainly because I had Mac Powell on the podcast and we talked about Rich Mullins, uh, I started doing a lot yeah. more research on him. And uh, that's how I found Brendan Manning. And that's how I started thinking, you know, maybe there's something I missed. Uh, and I was a little too dismissive dismissive of Christianity. So I'm glad we were able to have this conversation now in kind of uh, another point of my my brain kind of shifting and figuring out yeah. what all's going on. Man, I think that, uh, um, yeah, I agree, dude. I agree with that, and I'm really grateful for the opportunity to be on the podcast. And we could do a whole we could do a whole thing on Rich Mullins. I love Rich Mullins. Mm-hmm. Uh, 
as a human being, Brennan Manning. Um, listen to Pedro the Lion and Dave Bazan, B-A-Z-A-A-N. Uh, I think that Curse Your Branches would be a meaningful album for you to listen to. Mm-hmm. Um, it's kind of his breakup letter with God. Uh, and everything before that and after that is just really profound. It's meant, meant a lot to me. Um, and since podcasts are about discovery, you know, I definitely recommend, um, recommend that. And I would love to come back on. Yeah. For, for anything. And if anybody has any questions, they can reach out to me on Instagram or Facebook at Timothy Palmer, I, at Timothy Palmer on Twitter and Instagram, mm-hmm. and then at Timothy Palmer creative on Facebook. And so I'm happy to continue the conversation and, um, man, thanks so much, dude. I appreciate it more than I can even say. Absolutely. I was glad to talk to you. You have a good All one. Right. Talk to you on the flip side. See you later. Bye. Thank you guys so much for listening to another episode of the Popcorn Space Podcast. Be sure to subscribe and hit that notification bell so you never miss a video. All of our previous podcast episodes are available on youtube.com slash popcornspace, on iTunes, Spotify, SoundCloud, and at popcornspace.com slash podcast. If you had any questions for this podcast or anything you'd like us to talk about in a future episode, make sure to email me, Jackson at popcornspace.com. Follow us on social media. We're on Instagram at the popcorn space or on Facebook at facebook.com slash the popcorn space. All righty. Well, thank you so much and we'll see you next time.